So our virtual audience, if you didn't come out when it's only 114 today, thank you very much for tuning in. Well, I guess it's a good thing we didn't bring back that bottle of rosé like we had planned. It really is. <laughs> however, however, we went to brunch at the Henry, and I got so impatient waiting for the booth that they comped us extraordinarily potent mimosas. <laughs> they were trying to calm the wild beast. They were, yes. I was, I was really getting... <clears throat> Nancy. Um, so Linda and I are, are well prepared, well lubricated for this event <laughs> at all. But, but we've been doing this together for so many years, all the way back, I think, to Sworn for Silence. So with the COVID interruption, um, so you have to use the microphone. Yeah. Right? I'm really yeah, glad to I, see I think the first time uh, was actually with the um, uh, second book, Pray for Silence. Was that it? Yes. But I mean... Long what a time. treat to be able to come here uh, to this bookstore. I, I, I just and spend time with you, Barbara. It is a real, real treat. So uh, that's thank the mimosa you. talking, but still, <laughs> no, that's me no. talking. No, we've we've been friends a very long time, and while we were in COVID, Linda and Sandra Brown did a very nice two Texas authors. We did an event together, yeah. and I'm trying to think who else was it? Just you and me for the other year? Might have been. Um, you know, I think it was. You and I uh, did the first year, and then I think Sandra Brown was uh, the second year. But uh, they were really, really good events, uh, even though even though they weren't in person. Yeah. Sandra Brown is always a delight. And, of course, you always ask the best questions when you interview. And <coughs> it it's... Uh, well, that'll be put to really the test nice. today. We yeah. will see. Right, so um, what I am going to do um, is get you to open the water, because if I don't, I'll pour it all over myself, and I will have another embarrassing accident. So. I, saw, I saw that. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Anyway, um, so we are here once again in Ohio Amish country, which Linda, although she lives in Texas in Hill Country, has kind of made her own. And I'm not sure that I've really fully asked her in the same way that I would ask a Hillerman how the Navajo feel about the Hillermans writing about the Navajo culture. What kind of feedback do you get from the Ohio Amish about your books? You know, I have to tell you, I have a funny story. Uh, it was actually that same tour, my very first book tour with Pray for Silence, which is the second book in the series. And I was a nervous wreck. I had never been on book tour. You know, most people are a little bit nervous about public speaking anyway. And so uh, small town Ohio, uh, I think the this was actually in a little town called Dover, Ohio. And there are probably, I think the population there is about 6,500. So it's at the library. I arrive at the library and uh, there's no place to park. It's all just jam-packed with cars, and I thought, oh, boy. I had to park at the high school across the street, so nervous as I'll get out. I walk in. Jim Gill, who is the library director, calm as a cucumber, says, oh, hey, Linda, when you finish your talk, that Amish dude back there in the back wants to talk to you. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, I'm going to get an earful because if you've read the books, you know that there's a, there's a certain level of violence and there's a certain level of language, and I thought, you know, hopefully I didn't offend anybody, but, you know, I, that's sort of what I was expecting. So we did a book giveaway that day, and the Amish guy won the book. And I thought, okay, that's going to soften him up just a little bit. So anyway, I finished my talk. I survived. 
And afterward, I went back and I talked to him. His name was Mark. He wanted to tell me he loved the book. And I know that in that first book especially, I made a few research errors. You know, the Amish are particularly difficult to research. There are a lot of things that simply are unwritten. And they're not, you know, they don't get out and talk about their, you know, their rituals and their customs and, and things like that. He didn't say a word. So it was a very kind conversation. And I've actually uh, been to his house since then, well, him and his wife and two children. And uh, he's the one that let me drive his buggy. He let me drive his buggy, which I thought was really, really cool. So he's since moved to Canada. So I probably, you know, won't talk to him again. But it was a good experience. Um, one other instance that's, that sort of sticks out in my mind, I received, uh, this was actually after the third book in the series, um, Breaking Silence, I received a letter from an Amish gentleman who lived in Wisconsin, and his name was Levi, and he said that he was, he read the book, and that he was so offended by the book, he burned it. And I, w I was like, you know, you could have just donated it to the library or something <laughs> like that. But I, I did, I just sort of let it go at that point. But those are the two, um, two that stand out in my mind. Yeah, those are two extremes. And, you know, the wisdom is do not engage with anybody that incendiary. <laughs> can't, ever, can't ever go well. So in the course of the series, we've been to upper state New York once, and we've been southern, farther south in Ohio than your Painter's Mill yeah. community. But mostly you have stayed within the trajectory of this community that is it in Holmes County yep Holmes County Painters Mill of course it's a fictional town um, it's about uh, I would say 25 minutes south of Millersburg how many of you have been to that area of Ohio um, in my mind I envisioned it as being about 20 I've got I've got it circled on my my you know 10 year old atlas where where the town is and uh, so about 10 miles uh, south of Millersburg, there was one other book that I changed locales. Uh, the first one was Among the Wicked, which I said in upstate New York. Right. And uh, of course, the second one was where uh, Kate had to travel down to nearly to the Ohio River right. and actually into Kentucky. And then the third one was the hidden one from last year oh, at the, right. the yeah. Keisha Coquias Valley in Pennsylvania, which which was, I would have loved to have gone there, but I didn't have the opportunity. So I spent a lot of time on Street View. Even if you go out to Street View, uh, you know, you can kind of walk along the back roads, you can see Amish buggies there. So that, uh, one of the reasons that I do that, Barbara, is, you know, especially with the long running series, you know, one of the jobs that a, a writer has is you want to keep the series fresh. And sometimes it's just interesting to change the locale up a little bit. So so when we talk about Pennsylvania Dutch, are we actually talking about Amish, not the Ohio Amish, but different? Or is it yet a different branch of the um, this Protestant world? Because I've been to Winston-Salem in the Mennonite community, which is quite strict. Um, they even had separate that one of the most interesting places I've ever been is in the cemetery in Winston for the community in Winston-Salem because they lived separately in dormitories, men and women. They did have children. Astonishing. I'm not sure how that worked. <laughs> um, but they're also buried that way in cemetery. They are not buried as families, but the women are buried separately from the men. So within that kind of larger German Protestant 
you yeah. know, group. Um, there are more than one branch, and some of them are stricter than others. You know, there really are. And when they, when they, you know, they were very persecuted back many, many years ago, uh, 1600s, 1700s, uh, the Anabaptists, who basically believe in adult baptism, that was the whole beef with, you know, the Catholics and, you know, other religions. I mean, they would burn people at the stake and drown them and do, you know, do all sorts of uh, terrible things. Uh, they, when they started coming, uh, people who, from that area, who were non-Amish, non were called um, the fancy, um, um, uh, uh, what's, what's the word you just used? The, uh, no, they, the men, that would probably include the Mennonites, uh, but then they were, what's that? Um, because those are the English. Those are the not Mennonites. Yeah, yeah, it was the group of the basically the Dutch. I oh, mean, they they're not they're the Pennsylvania Dutch, Dutch yeah. even though they're not Dutch. They're more German and Swiss. Right. And then the so the fancy Dutch were the non-Amish, and then the other Pennsylvania Dutch were the you know the Hutterites, the Amish, and and the Mennonites who came over. So so I brought this up because this comes up in the book. Um, it, it's not a spoiler to say that at the very beginning, Kate and, um, I'm going blank, yeah, Thomas Eddy are on a trajectory to get married. And um, the question is, can they get married in Painter's Mill in, in this community? And the rationale is that even though she's not Amish, she's on Annabelle. Anabaptist, yeah. Anabaptist, yeah. and so yes. they're willing to have a, you know, they can have a ceremony, her family can attend it, um, whether other people in the community will attend it, and she's, she's on a, also on a trajectory to reconnect better with her sister, mm -hmm. um, and her brother, uh, all of which, you know, you've been working your way towards, so I mean, in a way, you've got a story arc in this book that's yeah. coming to its completion, Assuming that the wedding takes place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Kate's been working on that. I think that was one of the things that drew her back to Painter's Mill because she lived in Columbus. She she had found her way into law enforcement. And, you know, um, her roots were just calling for her. She wanted to get out of the city. And when the chief of police um, uh, job opening came open, the town council um, courted her and they asked her if she would be interested in and the time was right, and so she said yes. And one of the things that she wanted to do was, uh, you know, she had been very close with her siblings uh, when they were kids. I mean, they grew up together. Amish families are so close-knit. They are absolutely the center of the universe of those children. And so uh, they're very disproving of Kate because, for one thing, you know, She's uh, living living with a man out of wedlock. She's not married. She's not Amish, and uh, you know she's been known to use a, a bad word or two. And and she just does you know lives a, as an English woman, even though she's remained Anabaptist. And so those are some of the hurdles that that she has to work through. And I think because love really does run both ways. Maybe her family won't admit it. I think they're willing to sort of look, you know, overlook that and accept Kate back in. I mean, there's been some iffy moments in there, and there there still are. Um, in fact, I'm I'm about 
300 pages into the next book that will be coming out next summer. And it's, and you know, there's some, uh, you know, there are some storylines that bring back some of the things that, you know, they're not reconcilable. And so they're, they're still trying to work through some of those things. So I'll probably never entirely work through them. Right. And I'm so glad. That's usually my last question. What are you writing now? So I, I want you to all go oh. away <laughs> cheerful. Um, so you've already answered that. Yeah. Right. Um, but, I mean, you know, you, you bring it out in some interesting ways. For example, um, Kate and her sister are having a wedding dress fitting. And, um, and Kate... Is she going to wear the, you know, their mother's wedding dress, which is not a typical wedding dress, you know, for Englishers anyway? Um, and so I, I like right. the way. Have you actually seen? Because I mean, this is a, this is a book I wish were illustrated. Have you actually seen um, the the dress or a prototype for the dress you're describing? You know. Um, I've seen pictures. Um, I've not, you know, they don't really use wedding dresses. They use their um, church best dresses. But uh, the problem that Kate runs into is that with these dresses, there's a very traditional Amish um, parts, like it's called a halsduk, which is a piece that fits over. It's got a hole that the head goes through, and then it attaches around the waist with safety pins. And, you know, Kate, basically, her sister is Kate standing on the platform being fitted for this dress. And she's sweating and she's fidgeting. And she's like, oh, what am I doing? And the sister's pinning and she's saying, you need to hold still or I'm going to stick you with one of these pins. The Hall's Duke is traditionally Amish. And Kate says, if I keep that, I that's very hypocritical of me because I'm not Amish. So they're sort of working back and forth and trying to get rid of making it such a such a traditional Amish dress. It cannot be. Kate can't do that in her good conscience. So, you know, so then in the room, Kate is being fitted for an Amish, you know, Amish type wedding dress. She's got her holster, her gun holster on, on the cedar chest at the foot of the bed, her pistol sitting on the bed on the, the wedding ring quilt. And she's kind of looking around going, Oh, there's a lot of contrast right there, <laughs> just a little. And her phone as well, you know, so, yeah. right. So, you know, it's interesting the way there's um, forced compromises yeah. all the way, all around. We're leaving out Tomasetti from this whole equation. Yeah. Um, and also, it's kind of fun to see her set up the, there is a crime, I promise you, this is not a wedding book, but still. Um, I thought, you know, the the whole description of the, reception or how it all works, you know, if there is a wedding and how everybody comes together to celebrate it. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, I'm not. Yeah. But anyway, I thought Linda did a great job with it. But let's go back to Linda's hallmark, which is that all of these books start with a really violent crime. I've never really recovered from the one with the buggy accidents. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah. wow. And the motive behind it, which was equally horrendous. Um, so in this case, why don't you describe the really violent crime that starts this whole book off? You know, I, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but, you know, one of the things that I think is really, really important, if, you know, if you, if you read a series, you don't want the same things over and over. I think a writer really has to think about what they're doing, and they, they don't want these stories to be repetitive in any way. And so when I started writing this book, 
you know, I thought originally that I would start out with a, with a shooting and I'm writing it. And there was just this little voice saying, this is, this is not quite right. There's got to be something better. And so I sort of was just messing around on the internet one day and I read this story. It was actually in the UK and it was about a man who had been shot with a crossbow and he described what it was like that um, it's not as violent, allegedly, as uh, being shot with, a, with a, a bullet, but, you know, deadly nonetheless. And I thought there are plenty of you know, hunters in Ohio, a lot of deer during, during deer season and whatnot. It's a very short season, but a lot of people do hunt with crossbows, combination bows, you know, there are all kinds of, and I, much to my surprise, I learned I think they travel something like 3,000 feet a second. That is, that is an astounding uh, amount of power. And so I thought, you know, that's going to be different. And so I, I have a, a young Amish man upstanding. He's on his way to work um, in the morning and uh, sees somebody as he's flashing by on a back road, somebody standing in the ditch stops, looks over, and says, is everything okay? And, and uh, he's shot uh, with the crossbow. And, uh, and of course, he passes, passes away. And uh, Kate gets a call as she's being fitted for her wedding dress. So <laughs> it gets right to it. So if you were an actual student of Shakespeare and you had read Henry VI Part One, you would know that the British crossbow archers, the most fearsome warriors of their day defeated the mounted French knights in all their armor and horseback using crossbows because they could actually not only pierce armor, but they could kill the horses. So the British triumphed at Crecy and again at Agincourt because they were, crossbows were their thing. Or Robin Hood, for example. Robin Hood, sort of entirely clear to me whether they were using crossbows or regular bows, but right. a crossbow has a lethality that a regular hunting, you know, a regular bow and arrow just yeah. can't achieve. And also the arrow, you want to describe the flange point because uh, it's right. pretty brutal. It, it really is. They're, they're actually called bolts, uh, so I learned. And there are different, different types of heads that you can put on the bolt. And of course, some of them are just round points and go right in. You're able to pull them out. If you, you know, hunt for a deer or something like that, you can pull it out. Some are designed to do more damage, maybe to bring down a larger animal, I don't know, an elk or something like that. I wouldn't know. But um, it's called a broadhead bolt, and it's actually got four wings on that little round, and it's not coming out. If you have to remove that bolt, you have to push it all the way, all the way through, because there's, there's just no way... To, um, you know, people think that a, even a knife will come out of, you know, not that I know from personal experience, just from research, <laughs> but, um, you know, the human body is strong, uh, you know, a lot of bone, a lot of meat and uh, muscle. And uh, so it, it takes some doing and a broadhead's just not going to come out. So that's, they're, they're sort of designed for maximum uh, damage with good penetration. So that's what I, I went with in this case. So here's where C.J. Box is an excellent tutor. Um, the crossbow, what you want is for the animal, assuming you're hunting actual animals and not people, um, 
exsanguination is going to be the result. And so if you are a hunter and you don't want your meat to be full of bone splinters and all kinds of other stuff, you want to use a bow because basically you want your, your elk or whatever to bleed to mm -hmm. death. Yes. And um, it's a much cleaner um, kill. Right. Than, um, but, you know, there's a tremendous amount of strength involved in it. Yes. Isn't it great all the stuff you can learn reading crime fiction that, you yeah. know, <laughs> in the course of, course of events? Do you remember the lady here in Scottsdale that, I'm trying to remember, she had a beauty parlor or something and she killed her husband and chopped him up and dropped him in different dumpsters? And oh I can gosh. still remember thinking if she'd only read crime fiction, she would have known that she could have dissolved him in a mixture of Tide yeah. and other things, <laughs> which I knew from reading Aaron Elkins. So, because he had an actual recipe in a Gideon Oliver book for how to dissolve bodies. Um, so, Obviously. You know, not a well if you're taking woman. up crime, you want to first read, yeah, how to do it. Uh, no, it's really true. It's it's fascinating, yeah. you know, all the weird stuff that sticks in your head. Yeah. Um, as an author and a reader, but yeah. anyway, so this poor kid, when the arrow hits him, yeah. has got no chance. Basically, he is going to bleed to death right. before there's any chance that, even if you know somebody were right there and called the EMTs, it wouldn't help. He would he would bleed out before. Right they got there. And it's too big a wound for um, any, unless you were carrying like, you know, a full, and even then probably not, um, you know, kit. Or yeah, it wouldn't, like it really wouldn't, wouldn't help. Right. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, he dies there on this lonely, but perfectly beautiful road. Yeah. And, um, and the question is, first of all, the question is, who is he? And then the question is, you know, we know why he was there. Why was he there? Because that part is pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, just on his way to work. And that that's relatively easy for uh, Kate to figure out. And even when she first arrives on scene with, uh, I think, uh, Glock, uh, her uh, one of her officers is there on scene. And I mean, they even think at first that it's a uh, that it's an accident, that maybe somebody was hauling uh, T-posts in a truck and maybe the T-post hit him or fell off and the driver panicked and fled and but it doesn't take him very long to realize that this was no accident this was a murder and it was a very brutal brutal murder he was actually shot twice and so uh that's right. you know but he was on his way to work he was on his way to a meeting part in a point at a church parking lot mm -hmm. where he and right. two other guys were picked up and taken right. to work so his routine was established and well known so it wouldn't have been difficult for somebody to waylay him um, with reasonable certainty that they would encounter him. Right. He's riding his bicycle. Right. Right. Yeah, On the road. exactly. Right. So there's the crime. And then the question is, you know, who did it and why did it and all that stuff. You have to read the book to find out. But um, let's talk a little bit about, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Rumspringa? Rumspringa. Oh, I'm close. Yeah. Okay. Because he's a kid that is of the age to be like that. And, you know, I can't help but feel that because the Amish are so traditional and relatively strict, that to turn these kids loose for a couple of years, completely untutored, mm -hmm. is yeah. bound to lead to some very bad results. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, so it's certainly going to be, and I don't know if the girls 
are are quite so liberated as to think they can have unprotected sex and you know nothing terrible will happen but the boys certainly think they can do that right yeah i i think the amish they are uh patriarchal to to a degree which means i think the boys do get more freedom although the girls do go go on rum spring as well maybe not all of them but some of them do and you know that that really goes back to the whole anabaptist thing I think the theory behind that, you know, our world has changed a lot. And even even if you look at now, all of the temptations and the things that are out there for our young people was different even than 20, 25 years ago. And I think maybe the older Amish, the parents aren't quite aware of all of the things that are out there that are just not good for, for kids. Amish children are generally very protected and, uh, you know, uh, you meant they're not prepared for this. But I think the theory behind it is that they want these children to be baptized as adults. Therefore, in order for them to make a, an intelligent decision, they need to be able to see the world. And that's sort of the theory uh, behind that. But it really does open the, open the doors for trouble because these kids... Um, because they, they're like babes in the woods, all of a sudden there's, there's, uh, there's booze, there's marijuana, you know, who knows what else is out there. They, they throw these, uh, they call them an Amish rager. I just read a story and, um, it was actually in Holmes County. If you can believe a party called an Amish rager, I mean, that sounds like something like a, like a, one of those parties they had in the nineties, um mob or whatever yeah, yeah. Right. and a rave yeah how do you know <laughs> but um there were 74 arrests the holmes county sheriff's department arrested most of it was for my you know minor drug offenses and underage drinking people were not allowed to drink until they're 21 years old and there are all these 18 19 20 year olds drinking you know beer or whatever and 74 arrests which I um, thought yeah, was insane. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And of course, they haven't been, you know, accustomed to any kind of spirits. Yeah. And this also might be their only real chance to do it. So, you know, yeah. it might push them to to take. But mostly, I think they're just kind of, you know, sitting ducks for yeah. bad things. I, I agree with the theory. Yeah. I mean, I do understand the theory, but I think the theory hasn't really caught up with modern society. Maybe they ought to up the age of the rumspringas so that, you know, the kids are actually maybe 21. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I just, I think there's a gap there between yeah. reality. And there, re there really is. A lot of these, they, they really, they simply can't handle it. Right. And they, they drink too much. And I mean, dr yeah. probably drive, drive, whether it's a buggy or a vehicle. Some of them will even drive vehicles uh, during their um, spring and years. And then the adults kind of look the other, uh, the other way. And, you know, their hope is that they will become baptized. And then shortly after that, they, they will, uh, you know, fall in love with a girl and, and get married and have a family. Yeah, because, I mean, that's another big pressure, not only to stay in the church, but you can hardly live as a single Anabaptist. Right. It doesn't work. Or that's a single right. Amish. It'd yeah. be almost impossible to yeah. do that. Oh, yeah. You know. Even the widows are, are pressured to remarry, aren't they? The widows and the you widowers. Know, um they they do. I think the widowers are more likely yeah, to remarry. Yeah, because they have kids that somebody needs to look after. Yes. 
Right. But I mean, even the older widowers, right. uh, they, you know, they seek, you know, whether it's companionship or, you know, whatnot, um, even if they're past, you know, childbearing years or whatever, sure. but ne generally they will remarry. Uh, there are a few, I, there's a, there's a term for the women who don't remarry and it's not derogatory or anything like that. I cannot remember what it is off the top of my head, but they've got a, they've got a term for that. So the men widowers are more likely to remarry than the, than the females, which so, I thought was interesting. Right. Well, yeah. that's, that's actually, <laughs> it's, it's actually true that many, many more widowers remarried than widows. Partly there's a law of supply and demand there, but part of it is that men who've been married long and happily are just, they want to be married. Yeah. You know, that's what they're used to. Yeah. And in a family-oriented group like the Amish, if you weren't, you, if you weren't living with your kids or your kin in some fashion, it'd be, and, and also, how would you actually run a farm on your own? You know, yeah. what would you do with the barn and the, exactly. and the animals and, you know, exactly. all the rest of it? It's a labor. I've even just, I was telling Linda at lunch, so she has to like cut up my food. Um, that is, <laughs> it, I hadn't realized it, you know, how, how really dependent you are of something, you know, like this. Um, I, I'm a lot of things that that I suddenly can't do. I mm -hmm. can't get the top off a bottle. I can't open the dog, you know, the dog's food. Yeah. I can't. I can barely. I was put out my eye trying to put on my mascara. With my <laughs> yeah, my lipstick is all raggedy lines. But that stuff you can live with. Yeah. But, um, more basic stuff. If if you know, my husband didn't step up, it'd be much much harder. Yeah. I've gained a lot of respect for people with disabilities who are trying to navigate on their own. Yeah. 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 That's really true. And your dominant hand, you know, is I mean, I couldn't. I needed to give somebody a check the other day. I can't write a check. I can't. You know, all this other stuff that oh. you just take for granted. Yeah. I have two, and then yeah. I worry about my teeth. You know, it's yeah. like ah. <laughs> <laughs> with the bottle top. Right. You're like this check has teeth marks on it. <laughs> right. But I'll, I'll, my point is that it would be very difficult in in the way the Amish community is constructed to live in it as a single person. Yeah. Would be a single woman, particularly, I, it would I be think extremely it, difficult. Yes, they rely. They really do rely on each other. Um, you know, we all do. We, you know, sometimes we don't realize it, but we do. But I think, especially if you have livestock or right. if you have farms um, especially if you're Amish because you I couldn't imagine plowing a field with horses or cutting hay uh, that that would be really difficult because usually it's the husband the older kids and the wife will get out there it's a yeah. you know kind of a takes all of them to do that so that's it's a team effort if yeah. you're really interested in this there was a series written by a lovely man named pl gauss g-a-u-s who actually is a was i think he i'm not sure if he's deceased but i think he is i think he's still around is he yes okay well anyway he wrote what maybe 10 12 yeah um books set in this same area. Yeah. He is a, was he a professor, I think, um, an um, academic. Worcester College, maybe. Yeah, I think that's right, at Worcester College. You know how, anyway, um, he, many of the same things that are in Linda's books are included. Um, and he has, if not a sheriff, he has, it's male leads, 
and one of them is not Amish, if I recall right. But anyway, you get a slightly different picture of this same thing if you can find them. They were published in paperback by Penguin, mm -hmm. and my guess is now that you probably need to find them as digital books, or yeah. I'm not sure they're in print at this point. If they were, I'd probably have them here because I really like them, but it's a different view if... Um, yeah, um, you're he was really he that. was really really good. Good mysteries good. Yeah. and his his research. Um, he did a lot of research. He, he was did. really really good. Yeah, I did a panel with him once. P, P is in P L. He had two initials and then Gauss G A U S was yeah. his last name. And right. I would look him up if you find used copies or you can buy you know digital copies or whatever. I would recommend them if you're interested in more about the Amish yeah. you know culture. Yeah, highly recommended. He's very good. Yep. So let's go back and talk about what you wrote before you decided to write about Kate, because you were not, that was not your, it was your first, Sworn to Silence was your first book about Kate, but it was not your first book. No, my background is actually in uh, romantic suspense. Uh, do we have any romance readers or any romantic suspense readers? I, I sort of grew up reading um, Nora Roberts, Sandra Brown, um, Tammy Mary Hope. Stewart, Victoria Holt, yes. all those great names. Yes, I Mary Stewart in particular. God, I love even, her books. Even Tess Gerritsen. Did you know she wrote for oh, Harlequin? Yeah. yeah, now she wrote for Harlequin. And I'm trying to think there's somebody else like, speaking of Tess, she'll be here in October with a new series she's doing for a new publisher. Oh, um, oh yeah, which that's I'm excited fabulous. about. Yep. Wow. But yeah, she wrote um, a bunch of books for Harlequin. I'm she trying did. to think there are two or three other authors that would surprise you. Yeah. Didn't Sandra Brown write romance? She did. Tammy right. Hogue wrote for Abandoned yeah. Love Swept, if That's you remember, right. long time ago. Yeah. Um, I've got her very first book somewhere. Yeah. No, I love paperback. romantic suspense. And if you've been paying any attention, you will notice that romance and romantic suspense in the person of Colleen Hoover and other people have um, have really taken over and taken off. And a lot of that, Linda and I were talking about it at brunch, a lot of that is because so much of publishing is social media driven right now. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, um, it is. And uh, if you have a younger um, audience that is active on book talk and so forth, I'm going to have to learn book talk. I just hardly stand the thought, but I'm not doing stupid little videos. So I'm not going to dance, but I'll talk. <laughs> That's okay. I can talk. Um, but anyway, um, so there's clearly a very large appetite for books like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, they reflect life experience. I think I read there was a very interesting essay in the New York Times on Saturday. Maybe it was in the Wall Street Journal. I can't remember which. Um, about why people read Colleen Hoover. And part of it was that it is the hard scrabble version of the Daniel Steele and all the fancy, remember all the Beverly Hills and, you know, glamour. This is the underside, the underbelly of the glamour. Yeah. Um, the Sydney Sheldons and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah. And, I remember you know, um, The Other Side of Midnight. And yeah. Susan, what was her name? Um, I can't even think of the one, the one that had the dog. The best book she ever wrote was about her poodle. Now, oh, that was the one, The Other Side of Midnight. No, yeah. no, no, no. She was a very was famous kind of trashy... It's going to come to me. But anyway, whatever... Yeah. 
Um, but she wrote, her, I mean, seriously, her very best book was a memoir about her dog. But she made a fortune writing, you know, sexy, glamour, uh, whatever. So I think it's interesting that at the moment, it's the antithesis yeah. of the of the rich and famous. It's the hard scrabble poor coming up in, you know, it's basically a sort of Horatio Alger story for women is what's going on. And I think some of that also is just escapist reading. Mm -hmm. You can escape into another world and it's fun. And I, I just, you know, I did that. I, I, when I started reading romance, I, I had a corporate job. I was not in love with my corporate job. All I wanted to do was write books. And I can just remember diving into Nora Roberts. And I mean, I would just not leave that book. It was, she just took me on so many wonderful adventures. And when you just kind of escape from your world, if you're stressed out about something, if you don't like your job, if things aren't going right, those are the kinds of books that you can really dive into. And that was my love, you know, that of romance. So then, uh, so I'm writing for Harlequin. I wrote also for Silhouette Intimate Moments. And I was in a very unusual position uh, back in the early days, way before Kate Burkholder, I sold a big single title romantic suspense to Berkeley. And so I had, I was writing basically for two publishing houses. And, um, you know, the, the protocol is you, the writer finishes the book, you send it in, the editor reads it, makes a couple of suggestions, and then you fix it. And so I had Kim was my editor at Harlequin, and then Cindy was my editor at, um, at Berkeley. And uh, after a few books, I realized I was getting very similar feedback from both of these editors. And they were basically telling me, Linda, these are romance novels. You really need to concentrate on the relationship between the hero and the heroine. And they were basically telling me I was killing too many people. <laughs> and, you know, it was really about that point that I did some soul searching and I realized I'm writing the wrong genre. I really wanted to dig into the murder mystery. I wanted to write something a little bit darker, you know, take a walk on the wild side, if you will. And that's when I kind of just threw myself into that first book. And boy, did I ever cut loose on that first book. Well, you did. I <laughs> did cut loose. I, I had felt so constrained for so many years and so many books. I really cut loose. So why why did you pick the Amish in, in Ohio if you were going to cut loose? Well, it's almost an almost an oxymoron <laughs> if you think about it, right? That seems like a you know an oxymoron kind of thing. But um, I knew I had been around publishing enough to know that if that if I was going to write a breakout novel, that it was going to have to be there was going to be have to have to be something about it that would set it apart from the rest of the pack. So um, I'm a plotter. I love to plot. Most writers hate writing synopsis. I love to write synopsis. You sit me down and I will give you a good synopsis in 24 hours. And so um, I plotted the book and I thought it's high concept. It's good. It's violent. It's different. It's missing something. And so at about that point, I took a happenstance trip to Ohio with my sister and my brother-in-law. It was his birthday. He grew up in a 200-year-old farmhouse in northeastern Ohio, which just happens to be an Amish country. And we're, you know, had a nice visit. We're getting ready to leave. It's like, I don't know, it's like 20 below zero. There's 10 inches of snow on the ground. Great old bank barn in the back of the property. We're in the driveway. 
and I hear, I'm standing outside, I hear the clip-clop of shod hooves coming down the road, and I turned around and I looked, and it's an Amish buggy with a flat-brimmed hat, guy dressed in black, his family's kind of tucked into the back of the buggy, and in that moment, I thought, if I were to take this high-concept thriller that I'd been working on that is missing something, and I set it among the Amish, because, you know, i I know Ohio. I didn't know very much about the Amish, but I could certainly learn. And I know, I know the rural lifestyle because I grew up, you know, in a town of 79 people. And so went back to Texas at that point and, uh, you know, started working on the book. And I thought um, one of the things that I could do as a writer that would set this book apart, that would really give readers a glimpse into what it's like to be Amish or what it's like to be formerly Amish is to have a character who is formerly Amish. And I knew that I wanted to have a female protagonist. I knew that I wanted her to be in law enforcement. So she couldn't be Amish. So I'm like, she's formerly Amish. And that's sort of when Kate Burkholder was born. It is. Why did you, why did you want her to be in law enforcement? Because it, that's much more constraining if you have a detective who is actually in law enforcement as opposed to like a private eye mm -hmm. or a CA op or something like that, um, cops really do have to stick with procedure and protocol. They have to follow the rules. They do. Um, and, you know, so why did you decide on one of those? It probably wasn't a lot of work for a private eye in Amish country. You was, know, I, I don't know. I, it really could have gone either way, um, but I've just... Uh, especially even when I was writing my early romantic suspense, I loved writing cops. I loved like, mm. uh, like Lucas Davenport, the John Sanford. He, to me, he, he is the police procedural all the way. He writes the best police procedurals. And I just love that. I read all of the prey books and I thought, you know, um, I wanted to, I wanted, I think Lucas has gotten away from that now, but he's early US, on, he's a U.S. Marshal now, but it's the yeah. same, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the tension in, in the Harry Bosch books by Michael Conley is that Harry's a cop, but he never really wants to stick to the rules. And yeah. so, you know, it's a constant back and forth. By the way, the Lincoln lawyer has started. And for those oh. of you who might've watched the original movie with Michael McConaughey and oh, think that this can't that be good. I'm telling you, it's a whole new universe there. And the first season is not, it's called The Lincoln Lawyer, but it's the second book in the series was the first book for the TV series. And this is now a new book. And the guy that is cast in the McConaughey role, you get used to him. He's really great. But I mm. thought they did a, I'm still, I've said this before. I had read the second book long time ago, I watched the TV thing, and I realized at the very last episode that the thing that made the whole thing work had been right there in front of me during the entire 11 episodes or whatever, and I had failed to see it. I was so pissed. <laughs> I, mean, I really was, because there's a magic moment when everything that hasn't worked, no, don't worry, I'm not going to tell anybody what it is, all of a sudden, you know, you see it, and it's like, Wow. So you know, I'm I, really anxious to see this new one. My memory, um, it's been a while since I saw that first one, but I had a similar moment. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I missed it the first time and I watched it the second time and I got it. 
but there's something there's something very clever there. I I do remember that. It's a really brilliant well, MacGuffin. It. Truly a MacGuffin. It's yeah. It's good. Yep. Anyway, I recommend you watch it. Um, I liked I it a lot. Um, and um, Makani, I I don't know. The Lincoln lawyer is a very different character from Harry, even though they're related. So there's you're not being disloyal to Harry if you watch. Well, I don't know that I would rewatch the original Lincoln Lawyer because there's such a difference between oh. McConaughey and I think mm -hmm. I think I would just start with the TV Lincoln Lawyer season one and go from there. Yeah, vomit. Um, yeah, and that you know that's a really interesting thing when you can recast when you can recast something as iconic as McConaughey, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. in that role and make it work. It says a lot because you know so many things that we love on television and movies and streaming and all fail because the to continue because the lead actor wants to retire. Do you remember that absurd thing in Downton? Do you remember at the end of season three when the guy decided he wanted to quit and they had this perfectly insane explanation for why he was going to disappear from the program? It was the worst writing ever. Uh, I was really I was really offended. You know, by, but I mean that's what happens is that sometimes yeah It was totally lame. Yes, right. But anyway, my point is that very often a, a series is vulnerable to the whims of the actors, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so I think it's great when you're able to do something like Connolly has done with The Lincoln Lawyer and actually have a new cast and yeah. make it work. Yeah. It's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. So I digress, but you don't mind losing sales to Michael, do you? Oh, no, <laughs> no not at all. Of course not. <laughs> so we've probably said everything we can reasonably say about An Evil Heart. Um, we do have special bookmarks that Linda yeah. has here. And um, if we have questions from the audience, Patrick has the um, microphone because we need it for the streaming. Yes, sir. I actually have two questions, one for you. How do you know which authors are available or on tour or how do, how you do I know which authors are available on tour? How do you keep them coming in? Could here? I tell you that I already have a date for September 2024? <laughs> <laughs> we are actually booked out through December at this moment. Um, do, do the agents call pretty you? Pretty much. Or? It's not agents. It's a combination of the publisher asks us to do something, or I request, as I always do with Linda, um, I request the author because we have worked together before, or sometimes the author has a private publicist that is authorized to get in touch with us. But most of the things we do are not initiated by us, but rather brought to us. And then we have authors who are, who are repeat authors. Mm -hmm. We talked about Michael Connolly. Okay, he did his first ever book signing here, and he says he will do his last one when the time comes. Yeah. He will do it here. We could say that about Lisa C., about Don Winslow, about Michael McGarity, I can't even begin, Ann Hillerman, the list goes on. There are probably, probably almost 100 authors who literally have started here every, every single time. And one of the reasons is that we are essentially a not-for-profit bookstore. Our staff probably wishes we were less not-for-profit than we are. So, so we're willing to do things that won't make us any money in the immediate future because we're not focused on profit. And most bookstores wouldn't have taken Mark Greeny and the Gray Man at a seven ninety nine paperback and done an event for him, mm -hmm. but we were okay with that. Yeah. So, you know, thirty three years in, it's a it's a big kind of a pattern. 
Unfortunately, what doesn't work is for you to request an author. That's the one thing that we can't we can't really respond to is you know requests from you all. Although you know I'm happy to entertain them, but um, it's not going to have much effect on on the actual publishing schedule. And for Linda, there was a TV show on a few years ago called it was about the Amish Mafia. Oh. Is that a real thing in your opinion? It's wow. absolutely not. Uh, I had dinner with the sheriff of uh, Wilmot, Ohio, and that's where they filmed all of that. And he just total baloney. One, one of the things that is uh, paramount in the Amish culture is that they are pacifists. They, you know, during times of war, um, you know, if they were drafted, you know, during, you know, Vietnam, World War II, a nonviolent position, and they are, um, they will not fight, they will not protect themselves, they will not protect their property. And uh, when you, you know, if you put that in terms of Kate Brookholder, that was, that was one of the reasons why, she, one of the reasons why she left the Amish, not the main reason, but there were a lot of Amish tenets that she did not agree with and that she could not abide by, but they are, they are pacifistic. So. so, Linda, one of our online audience members want to know what drives you to write. Well, um, I love to write. Um, you know, I write about a, a book a year. And, you know, sometimes it's not always easy and it's not always fun and it's not always exciting. You have other things going on in your life. You don't feel good, you know. Sometimes it's work, I think, like anything, like anything that's good in your life. Um, but um, I feel like I'm very lucky to be in this position. Um, I worked for a lot of years in the corporate world, and I, I lusted after writing. It was all I wanted to do. I was absolutely obsessed with writing, and I never forgot that. And uh, so that's, that's, you know, one of the things that I remember uh, to this day. Every Monday when I wake up, I remember having to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to do key, uh, key indicators for the company, which was like the worst thing in the whole world. Because you work basically from 5 a.m. until 5 p.m. And I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> so... Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Linda. Oops, guess it wasn't my turn yet. I read your book and I don't have to keep paging back and forth to see who goes so smooth. Well, thank you. And I'm always like, I can't wait for the next one. So you just go and you come out with another paper. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Linda, I don't know if you'll know this, but in your research, have you seen any facts about the percentage of Amish youth who, after they have the rumspringer, whatever it's called, that they don't return to Amish? Is there? Um, you, the last, uh, John Hochstetler is a scholar on the Amish. Uh, I think he is uh, a professor at uh, Elizabethan College. Yes. And uh, last I heard, it's right around... 87 percent 86 87 percent remain Amish oh, okay and I, I think one of the reasons for that is if you look at an Amish family say there are 
you know, including the parents, say there are eight or 10 individuals, you know, especially if they're a farm family, they are together all the time. And when you grow up, the, the parents, I, they're good parents, generally speaking. I mean, they're human. They, they, I'm sure they make mistakes, but the parents in the family unit, they are the center of the universe for those children. And they grow up that way. And the only other, uh, during their young years, when they uh, act, encounter other people is usually during worship every other weekend. And usually that's at somebody else's farm. And so if somebody does get um, put under the ban or excommunicated, it's, it really is absolutely devastating. And one other thing that I should note about uh, the Amish bishop putting someone under the ban, it's, it's never done as a punishment. The whole point of that is to bring them back into the fold. Uh, mend your ways, stop driving that car, stop smoking that marijuana, and you can come back uh, into the fold and be a decent Amish person. Usually they're going to uh, change their ways and come back. Yeah, yeah, right. A lot of them don't. Well, if they can't even, particularly those that don't even stay out, they, they start to run prayer and they go home immediately. Yeah. That's basically it's too much. Yeah. Is there a question back there? Yeah, Christine. Thank you. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Hi, Linda. Hey. hey, I have two questions, but I know it's getting late. So you choose. Do you want the fun one or the serious one? Uh, whichever one you would like to ask. Let's do fun. Okay. So that you sounds mentioned good. You mentioned um, being able to ride the buggy. So that was about 15 books ago. Do you remember what that experience was like? I mean, was it a breeze? Did you feel, what did you feel like and how far did you go? Where were you? Um, I was actually at, at um, Mark's house with his wife and two children and my librarian friend, Denise. And I'm kind of crazy about horses anyway. So I wanted to go out and see his horse and the buggy and all of that stuff. And so he walked out into the barn and all of us went out there and he asked me, he goes, well, would you like to ride in the buggy? And I said, oh, I would love to. And so, um, I, I wanted to see what, what the horseshoes look like. So I'm like, can I pick up his hoof? And he goes, he goes, yeah, okay. So I picked up the hoof. I looked because I wondered how do they trot? So those, their standard breads, how do they trot without sliding on the road? And they have, they let the nails stick out of the shoes. And he said, they always try to stick to the asphalt. That's got a little bit of melty stuff on top. So then we get into the buggy and he's, you know, driving down the, just a narrow road. There's creeks and lots of trees and stuff. And I must've been grinning like a fool because he looks over at me and he goes, do you want to drive? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yes, I would love to drive. And it was really, really an interesting, fun experience. And um, I can just remember having those lines in my hands. And when there's an oncoming car, standard bred horses, those horses are used so often. They're experienced. But always in the back of your mind, you know that things can happen. And there, when there's an oncoming car, I'm always on that right. I was on that right rein just a little bit. So that was a really big learning experience. And that was actually the experience uh, right before I wrote um, Her Last Breath, which had the buggy accident. Yeah. So Your most <clears throat> heartrending book. Yeah. Wow. It was. Yep. 
And as usual online, they want to know, Hollywood, what's going on? You know, we had an option for a while, and the option has run out. And um, somehow, uh, do, do you all know who Poppy Montgomery is? She has been involved. She was actually involved with the first um, movie, the first Lifetime movie that was made, an Amish murder. Uh, you know, Nev Campbell was one of the producers. I think Poppy Montgomery was the executive producer, Barbara Lieberman. And we got another nibble, and somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how, but Poppy Montgomery is involved once again. So we're sort of going back and forth on that. Nothing has been signed, you know, really nothing in the works at this point. But, you know, maybe lightning will strike twice. You never know. Yeah. Well, with the writer's strike going on, there's not a lot of activity right now yeah, because stuff is backing up. Yeah. And, um, and people aren't going to take on a lot of new projects until right. they figure out how to continue with the older ones. Exactly. It's a, I hope it doesn't go on for too long because I think it's going to, yeah, it's going to create lots of issues. Right. But so will the UPS strike if it actually happens on oh, August no. 1st. Um, so, you know, but labor labor has to, you know, fight yeah. for, for what its members want. Yeah. I'm not opposed to strikes at all. I think that's what it is. Um, Linda has... Um, bookmarks but pk i left my copy of paul doyron's book in the back room i will grab it if you might want to get it um i'm going to i like to give away a book and linda has a fellow author called paul doyron um who writes for the same publisher and mm -hmm. he writes wonderful books set in maine mm -hmm. um he has a game warden investigator is his lead character and the new book called dead man's wake um takes place on, on Golden Pond. Remember the lake? Oh, um, yeah. Okay, yeah. so there's murder in the lake and under the lake in this book. Um, and it's interesting that in Maine, the game wardens also get to investigate crimes. Mm. But because the lake has police and the local people have a constable and there's a park ranger involved and there's um, our guy, Mike Bowditch, who yeah. is the... Uh, main investigator. It's one of those books where the different investigative departments get to um, conflict. Thank you very much. So do you remember how many tickets we have? I just asked John Charles, 22. Okay. So Linda, your job, there's okay. the book, um, is to pick a number between 1 and 22 so we can give whoever wins it. 12. Wow, she didn't waste a moment. Are you the winner? Great. Well, felicitations. <laughs> Right, come get your book. <laughs> if you like it, the whole series is in print. You can go all the way back to The Poacher's Son, which is a wonderful book and it's, read it's your a, way. It really is a very, very good series. I have not read the latest one yet, but it's Mike great. Bowditch is, is really good, and the setting is yeah. fantastic. Paul was here two, two Sundays ago, um, and so you can watch it if you want to go to our um, yeah. YouTube or Facebook videos. You can watch me talk to Paul about the book, which I absolutely love. So thank you all very much indeed. If you'd like to get your book signed, you could use your numbers to line up in that order. And Linda will stay here because she's kind of at photo height if you want a photo as well. Thank you all very much for coming. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 
100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.